these are real issues. Today is to sound the alarm. The trembling is happening all the time. Puerto Rico sits between two fault lines. The central government does not have the capacity to be able to deal with this type of situation. It was the governor that admitted there is no emergency plan for earthquakes. This is where stateside, we have to exercise our social capital, our political capital, and our conscience. This is a humanitarian crisis and we will not allow it to happen again. Hi everyone. That was Cristina Pasiones-Zayas, co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda in Chicago at a press conference announcing the reactivation of the Chicago Puerto Rican Agenda's 3Rs campaign for earthquake relief. I am switching up the intro for this week's episode because I want to share what Puerto Ricans in the diaspora here in Chicago are doing for earthquake relief. Since December 28, 2019, close to 1,300 earthquakes have hit Puerto Rico with the largest being a 6.4 magnitude quake. In response, Chicago's Puerto Rican agenda has reactivated their 3Rs campaign to rescue, bring relief, and rebuild the hardest hit parts of La Isla. Learn more about and or donate what you can to the 3Rs campaign at PuertoRicanChicago.org. Again, that's PuertoRicanChicago.org. I'll include the link in the show notes along with a link to the latest piece I wrote for Latino Rebels about the campaign. You can also stay up to date with the PR Agenda's earthquake relief efforts on their Facebook page. Now, on with the show. Bienvenido. Ahora está escuchando el Paseo Podcast, donde destacamos las historias de la comunidad, por la comunidad y para la comunidad puertorriqueña. Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smizer de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. On this week's episode of the Paseo Podcast, I am joined by Sabrina Alicea. She is the creator of Shop La Maestra. She's a seventh grade Chicago public school teacher, member of the Chicago Teachers Union, CTU Local One, and a Chicago Boricua with a master's degree from the Ivy League. We are going to talk about Sabrina's Shop La Maestra brand, life as a POC at Harvard University, the realities of being a Chicago public school teacher, and the recent CTU strike, and a whole lot more. I normally like to keep these episodes down to about 30 minutes or so, but just like with Cristina Pasiones-Zayas last week, I had to push this interview to an hour. We covered so much ground, I just had to include everything that Sabrina and I talked about. I couldn't help myself, and I hope you don't mind. If you like what you hear or have a question about today's episode, let us know on our social media channels on Twitter and Facebook at Paseo Podcast. That's at P-A-S-E-O Podcast. We also take topic pitches. So if you have any topic suggestions, feel free to send those too. Now, let's jump into the conversation with Sabrina. Señora. 
We are here live in the Puerto Rican Cultural Center studios located and based in Chicago, Illinois. I am here with Sabrina Alicea, a seventh grade CPS teacher and creator and founder of Shop La Maestra. Sabrina, welcome to the Paseo Podcast. How are you today? Thank you for having me. I'm great. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. It's a beautiful day. Yep. Um, what should our audience know about you? I like to introduce myself and tell people that I am a loud and proud Chicago Puerto Rican no matter where I am. I teach seventh grade reading and that's my my pure passion. Um, I started my blog Shop La Maestra and the business kind of after looking around and seeing that there wasn't a lot of representation of Latinas in education um, and that led me to this whole beautiful path that brought me right back to Chicago. That's awesome. So talk a little bit more about Shop La Maestra. Yeah. What is it? At? What's the mission? Why does it exist? It started, um, like I said, when I was looking at, at, you know, I was going to go to grad school and I was looking around at uh, like different women that I knew that did, went to grad school and I really couldn't find any other Latinas. I was living in L.A. at the time and I was thinking about this idea of representation and how I didn't know a lot of careers. So the shop actually started with doing features of Latinas that I met in L.A. Um, and so it was really cool because I, I got to interview so many different women who were taking completely crazy career paths that I had never even thought of. Um, I had interviewed a woman who started a cotton candy business that is Latino-inspired flavors. I interviewed a woman who was a uh, fashion designer. She was on, um, oh my goodness, what is that? What was that show? It was the one with the clock, Flavor, Flavor of Love. Oh, Flavor, Flavor of Love. Of love. Yes. Yeah, Flavor of Love. Yep, yeah, she yeah. was on uh -huh. that, and so she told me stories about like being in the closet. Um, we interviewed a welder which was awesome because there's not a lot of representation of that at all. Yoga instructors, all these different women. And I made the shirts to go with the features to like do a photo shoot of the women and all of that. And um, I was just going to do it short term. I was like, I'll do this over the summer. When I go away to school, I'll stop it. And it just took off. The environment out there was really, really hot for it. Everybody loved it. So I would do these pop-ups and people would come just for my shirts. And, mm -hmm. it, and it was like awesome to see. So I haven't stopped it. I've just continued to do it and build different things within the brand. I tie it to my teaching. Um, so it started under a different name, and it's evolved as I've evolved and kind of figured out who I am. Were you born in Chicago? Yeah, I was born and raised in Chicago. Okay. I moved to L.A. in, like, 2015, I think. Okay. I just wanted a break. I was, like, sick of, of the weather. I was yeah. sick of – at the time I was teaching, I was sick of my job. Like, I, I had a really hard time. I was teaching third and fourth grade. And um, I, so I moved out there, and I was there for about two and a half years. One of the years I was in grad school in Boston, mm -hmm. um, and it was still kind of my home base. Yeah. But then I, as soon as I knew when I went to grad school that I was going to come back to Chicago. So you're in L.A. That, is that why you have kind of, like, I look at the shirts, Educated Latina, and I look at that font. Mm -hmm. It looks like a very L.A.-inspired yeah. font. It's purposeful. Yeah. The, the font was actually inspired by my dad. So my dad okay. used to do a lot of, like, graffiti and tagging when I was younger. And I remember when I got my high school diploma, that font was in the diploma too. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yo, this font, like we always thought it was a hood font, but they put it in the diploma. <laughs> yep, so it's like yeah. this double meaning and that, that was why I chose it. I thought it was perfect for, for that shirt. That's awesome. And then yeah. so you mentioned like going to pop-ups and, mm -hmm. and, selling, and selling your product. Like, is this something that can only be found if you happen to be at a festival and online or do you have like a physical store no i don't have okay. a i don't have a physical store it's online mm -hmm. mostly and then um wherever i can do the pop-ups i really miss doing the pop-ups out in la it was it was a lot of fun and plus it's nice weather year-round so you can like 
be oh outside yeah, all consistently. the time. Yeah, yeah so that was really grind. cool. But yeah, it, we do the online um, the online shop, and so I ship to almost every single state. People wow. people find it all through you know Instagram. Would a goal of yours be to have like a brick and mortar shop, or do you know. feel like online is the way to go? I feel like if I were to ever own a space, the space I would want would be more community based. Um, something where where people could be. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that I would want like a store for my stuff, but it might be that if I have a place, the this, this stuff would be there as well. Yeah, let, well, let's talk more about that stuff. So mm-hmm. can you give us a rundown of, I've seen the Educated Latina yeah. shirts. What other apparels on your site? We have um, the shirts, obviously the sweaters. Mm-hmm. I partnered with a, a, my friend who is, she's Mexican and Pilsen and she does vinyl mm-hmm. and she makes a Latina AF shirt. That's the only shop, uh, only shirt in my shop I sell that is not my own design. Everything else is my own. Um, we just launched a product, a CPS shirt. And that one is, again, it's like you kind of a graffiti font. I did that one myself. And then um, that proceeds from that shirt go towards helping my classroom with funding mm. for different things, like with field trips for the kids and, and all of that. We have hats. We have little, like, stickers and notepads. It sounds like you got you kind of have run the full gamut there. You Try. got a little bit of everything. <laughs> yeah. What? So you mentioned a couple things. I want to get into... Uh, supplies for the classroom. Mm -hmm. But I first want to go back to your website as a whole. When I took a look at your website, I saw that there was a tagline at the top that said education, representation, and empowerment. Mm -hmm. Why those three words? It really boiled down to that's what it was all about for me. I feel like education um, needs to be something that we talk about more and talking about what education looks like. It doesn't necessarily mean formal education. Mm -hmm. We got a lot of community knowledge. We have a lot of people around us who who can just you know give us an education, and we need to we need to talk about that. Um, representation is huge because I think when I when I was doing the features, I saw that there wasn't representation, and so I want Latinas to be represented in a more positive light, and so that people can see that we are that we are capable of a lot of things that we're not um, you know generally seen as capable of, mm-hmm. and that's where the empowerment piece comes from too. I want to empower people. I want to empower my students. I, I did the features um, because I thought the more that I know, the more careers that I know, I can then tell my students how big to dream. When I was teaching third and fourth grade, one of my kids, his biggest dream was to be a garbage man. And I'm like, that's a great job. They have great mm-hmm. benefits. Like, you get paid very oh, yeah. well. That's awesome. But then, you know, the other kids, it would be a, a football player or a basketball or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, we just need to dream bigger. We need to dream dreams that we don't even know exist, and I want to be able to tell my kids about these things. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, speaking of dreams, I mean, running your own business is a dream a lot of people have. Being your own boss, there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. It's kind of cool to kind of call the shots. As a person of color, as a Latina business owner, can you speak a little bit to the experience of, so you've brought this dream to life. Mm-hmm. What's the reality as a, a POC Latina yeah. uh, business owner? Well, I have to be very conscious about the places that I do pop-ups because my stuff is obviously very targeted Mm -hmm. Um, so that that's been part of a like figuring out okay is this a Latino focused event is it a Latino area Um, I've done pop-ups in Pilsen that are at a brewery and that they're not really Latino focused so I'm like okay this is a little bit of kind of like I don't want to call it a waste of time but it's like I definitely sell more when I'm at other types of things Mm -hmm. um Navy Pier is another really great example Navy Pier is a very mixed crowd but what was cool is the people who come in 
who are like on vacation they're like oh my god what is this right like they're just they're surprised to see it and and that makes me really happy to be able to give them that um there are times though too where people will say things to me people are not latino and they try to make jokes or they'll say um you know, like I had some some white guys come up and they were like, yeah, not for me, trying to be silly and like mm. nodding their head. And my mm. gut reaction, I was like, not everything is for you. Mm. And it was like a little spicy, I know. But okay, I, yeah, threw some adobo on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I just got kind of a little bit irritated. And I was like, all right, let me take a deep breath. I'm just okay. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's been part of that. The other thing is I feel like I don't have um, as much knowledge about owning a business as I would as I would like. Mm-hmm. No one in my family has ever owned a business. None of, no one in my immediate circle um, has ever done any of this stuff. So it's it's constantly learning what to do, how to do it, who who to talk to, um, what's the right thing, what's the wrong thing. You know, that's that's been a learning curve for sure. I have a lot of Latina friends that have their own businesses, mm-hmm. and if if this is too much of a generalization stop me in my tracks, but <laughs> a common thing that I hear from them and their experiences is particularly with men. When men come in, they want to give all types of advice to yes. you on how you can take your business to the next level and yeah. you should be doing this, that, and the other. Is that something that it you is, get a lot? It's so annoying. Yeah. It's very true. Uh, men will constantly come up and, and tell me why my business is important. And I'm like, I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I started I wouldn't it. be doing I it. I did. Yeah. I, that's right. why I'm literally doing it. Yeah. Um, and then I also had a while where some men would be like, where's your educated Latino? And so I did make educated mm-hmm. Latino mm-hmm. and like no men were getting it. What? Yeah. And so totally it was funny. I, I got you. Don't worry. Uh, I got for sure. I appreciate that. But they, it would make me <laughs> laugh because I was like, y'all kept bugging me and bugging me. And then I made it and no one got it. It's wow. like, so I've been very comfortable sticking to Latina only items. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for affirming that because I was like, I don't know if this is like something that generally women experience. Right. Can I can never be in your shoes. Right. So, you know, as men, we need to we need to do a little bit better. Women can do stuff, if not exceed everything <laughs> that guys can do. So we Appreciate need to that. let that let that creativity breathe. So let's go back a little bit to your class your class supplies. Mm-hmm. On your website, you have a tab that links to your class wish list. Mm-hmm. So I clicked on it. There's a lot of supplies that you need. Yeah. Can you speak to why that something like that is needed, and why of all places to include that mm-hmm. you put it on your website? Um. Man, why is it needed? It's crazy. We can get that's into a deep, that's a deep it's question. So deep, I know. Yeah. yeah. Education is just not funded well, like period, mm-hmm. point blank. That's yeah. it. Anything that I want in my classroom in general, I have to be the one to to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get as teachers a two hundred and fifty dollar reimbursement for spending um on, on any supplies that we that we want to get. Um there's also like a tax break that's another two hundred and fifty dollars. Um, when you're first starting your classroom, you spend way over that, like yeah. m- mountains of money over that. So the 250 you get back is nice, but um, it doesn't really help. I've gotten a lot of books in my classroom, like donated to me, but it's been a lot of uh, like m- way more qu- quantity than quality. Mm-hmm. So they're not good books. They're they're uh, very. Um, a lot of the books are white characters. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them are boys, so it's a little white boy always, always, always. Mm-hmm. And uh, stuff that's not high interest to my kids. So whenever I want to have stuff that, that is high interest to them, I have to go out and research it myself um, and almost always fundraise for it. I'm so blessed that last year I was able to get, like, I want to say I raised over $5,000 from my classroom last year. Oh, my gosh, that's incredible. Ways. Yes. Wow. Um, 
it started with getting the, all the class sets that I wanted for the books throughout the entire year. So I designed the curriculum that I wanted and I got class sets. And that itself was about a $2,000 uh, fundraiser to do that. So that was $2,000. Like th- the 250 is nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, luckily I have a principal who's very supportive. And so he tries to give us materials whenever we ask for it. He's really good about funding and figuring it out. Um, but he shouldn't have to to do that either. You know what right. I mean? It shouldn't it shouldn't be that we're all scraping by. Like there's other things that we can focus our attention on. Um, and then throughout the remainder of the year, I also fundraised for field trips. So we had a field trip where the kids went to Springfield and it was $50 a kid. Um, and I was able to get that fully funded by sponsors and people just in my inner circle and, you know, on it through Instagram sent, sent money and then every kid was able to go. We even had um, this organization, Dish Roulette, that I went to high school with one of the co-founders, and she was like, "We're gonna fund, um, we're gonna fund snacks for you guys." And she donated two hundred dollars, and um, I took my kids to Costco, and we were budgeting, and we found snacks, and it was it was really cool. Do you feel like most people you encounter understand the realities that our teachers, our school teachers, go through when it comes to supplies? Because it seems like you've interacted with a number of very generous people. Do you feel like people get that, or does it take a little bit of education on your part to say, like, "No, these are real. These are realities." It depends. There's certain people that it'll be like, oh, I have a family member who's a teacher. I get it, you know, Mm -hmm. so they they know that. Um, I think people who interact with me, they know my passion. And so if I say to them, this kid is not able to do X, Y, Z, sometimes I don't even even have to ask. People just offer me money to Mm -hmm. to do stuff for the kids because I'm trustworthy to them, too. They know that it is going to go directly to my students. Uh, You know, unfortunately, there are times where people just don't get it. But the people who I do interact with, then spread my message and take that out to other people, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, one of my best friends, Sylvia, was telling me about how she was at a party and it was during the teacher strike and someone was talking smack and she was like telling him all the things about my classroom. Mm-hmm. And because she knows me, knows the story, knows the kids, um, and has she's even gone on field trips with me. I, I constantly am recruiting people to come in. Yeah. And um, she was then able to do the work and I wasn't in that room. Mm-hmm. And then the, she said that it ended with the guy being like, I had no idea. You know, but in, unless she had said something, he wouldn't have known. But now he knows. And yeah. maybe he'll spread something even further after that. Who knows? So you mentioned going into education. You, you did that in your undergrad and grad? Mm-hmm. Or, okay. Where'd you go for, where'd you go to undergrad? I started off at UIC. Cool. I was not crazy about how the education program was going for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't feel that I was guided very well. And plus, I'm from the city, so I wasn't, like, excited about being in the city. And I went to visit a friend at Northern, and I really, really liked it there. I looked up their education program, and it seemed decent. So I transferred. Um, it was good. I, and so I got my undergrad there. Had some issues with with um, we'll call it racism. Like yeah, mm-hmm. I had I had issues with racism with with some of the um, the way that the faculty wanted to run my student teaching. Mm-hmm. I had said I wanted to be in the city, and I paid this fee to be in the city. And they weren't. I guess they weren't used to kids who wanted to go into the city, and um, they tried to put me in countryside Illinois. And I was like, I'm not going to countryside Illinois. Oh I don't. My gosh, I don't know what's there. Geez. Like, I just. Why would I, I was like, why would I do that yes. when I have all these CPS so schools around me? Yeah. I was always very conscious about where I was going to take my knowledge, mm-hmm. um, and I always wanted to work in a CPS school. So um, I got placed in student teaching on the south side of Chicago. And it was crazy because the lady who I spoke to on the phone was like, you don't know where you're going to be in the city. You don't know how dangerous it is. You don't know this. I was like, I'm from the city. I live in the city. 
So I got sent to that school. I fell in love. I was so happy at that school. The kids were amazing. My supervisor was way more woke than anybody else in the program, and he loved the school. He tried to bring in people the following year to go to the school, yeah. and these kids from Naperville, they, they literally were all three kids from Naperville, refused to go down to my school in Inglewood. They had their parents call um, Northern mm. and say, like, my kid's not going there. It's unsafe. They don't know if their car is going to get broken into, all this stuff. So I don't even know who those who those kids are because I had already, um, mm-hmm. I believe I graduated at that point. But my administrator kept me in the loop about it, and I was, and some people at the school were okay with those kids making that that statement. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was really wild. I don't understand that mentality. It's like if you, I mean, something bad can happen anywhere. Right. I mean, I work at DePaul University, and we constantly will see announcements spread throughout campus. Yeah. Anything from you know stolen property to someone being assaulted, a number of different crimes. Um, And Lincoln Park is the most affluent neighborhood in Mm -hmm. our city. So to just the stereotypes we place in entire communities and the generalizations people make, I I don't get that. I'm just like, say that you don't want to work in the hood and move on. Like, that's what you're really trying to do. Do Mm -hmm. And who needs this education more than these kids in these areas? When you see an area has high crime, you know that that's high need. Mm -hmm. That's how I see it. And, and so part of our privilege is giving to those spaces. Right. So it was a very disappointing experience to see that. And I was glad I didn't know who those people were because I'm like, a, I don't know how I would have interacted with them. Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah. Um, so so you did your undergrad at UIC. Where did you say you ended up going after that? Northern, yeah. Northern? That's where I graduated okay, so from, Northern. UIC, Northern. Yes. And then after Northern, you went straight into CPS? Or is this when you're... Yeah, so okay. I was student teaching at that school. Okay. And then the, the semesters were weird. So I student taught the first semester, and then we went okay. back to school Got it. Um, for the last semester. So then... Like my last week of school in May, the principal contacted me and told me that there was a position available for me. And um, I was able to go back to the school and and work there. Dang. Yeah. So you went there, then you went to L.A.? Yes, I left there. So my principal and my assistant principal had left my second year. So my third year, I had new administrators in. um, And they were great, but they were just a lot more, a lot less of micromanagers. My first, my principal and assistant principal four were were more micromanagers. And as a first year teacher, I needed that. Mm -hmm. I really, really um, needed that support. And so by the time it got to the third year, I was just so stressed with a lot of the stuff going on. It was a really, 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 really high needs area. Mm -hmm. Um, I taught third grade. And third grade is a retention year in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So my class the last year ended up being the room with, with all the third graders who had failed, mm-hmm. plus the incoming third graders. And it was just really, really, really wild. There's a lot of, um, I don't I don't want to call it ego, but like these poor kids, like they, they that's a lot to tell a child that young, you failed. You literally right. marked them as a failure, mm-hmm. you know, and that's really traumatic for a lot of the kids. And I think that, they don't know how to handle it. I didn't know how to handle it. I'm not a therapist. I'm not, you know, yeah. able to, able to um, help guide them through that. So it was really stressful for me. It was I, really hard. It's, sometimes it feels like the structures we have in place are built with a certain demographic and oh, certain yeah. class in mind. Right. Yeah. So to think that everybody is operating in a level playing field, especially when it comes to our education system, right. it's just such a flawed way of looking at that structure. Yeah. Chicago is a perfect example of how we can speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about you being in CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union, because yeah. I think that is talk about a model for other cities. 
I know things aren't perfect with our, our public school system, but we'll get to that in a little bit. I, mm-hmm. I want to talk about your still your journey uh, into education um, and really honing your craft. So when you are done with your undergrad, you're experiencing what teaching's like, mm-hmm. you're encountering racism, you're seeing the realities of the classroom. You decided to get your master's in education, mm-hmm. right? And you went to Harvard. Yes. yes, right? Congratulations. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, so you decided to go to Harvard. Why? I mean, again, of all the fields to go into, mm-hmm. going off of what you experienced, why continue your education and, and get yeah. a master's degree? I actually education? left education, to be really honest. When okay. I when I left the classroom, the thing was I looked at my students, I looked at the community, and I was like, there has to be something more. There has mm-hmm. to be something different. Like, I was thinking about how um, in these these communities and even in my own family, the one who is the most stable is the woman, is the mother. And that is, it's almost always everything falls on that. And, you know, not to say anything bad about my dad, I love my dad, but like the, mm-hmm. the, the things that my mom does are very, very different. Um, and, and I saw that and I actually thought when I went to LA that maybe I would learn ways to um, incorporate health because I, I did yoga teacher training that year too, mm-hmm. and it completely changed my life. Like I, I joked that when I when I left, I broke up with my boyfriend, I broke up with my job, I broke up with Chicago, all of it, and just like redid myself and went out to LA. And I was like, I just want to learn more about health and healing. Um, and I actually had in my room in LA on the wall post-its of every single job that I had ever considered in my life, anything. Um, Even for a moment, if I was like, oh, I like taking pictures, maybe I'll be a photographer, maybe I'll do this. And it was always with the mission of giving people like platform or helping people. It was always Mm -hmm. with that. So I was like, how can I, how can I merge all those things together? Um, And I was actually a nanny when I was in LA. That's what I, nannies make more money than teachers. It's ridiculous. Um, And so I, I worked with a family and I would do things with the kids, like a lot of the reading activities. I brought them books. The dad wanted um, them to have more educational stuff at home. So I went to um, Lakeshore Learning, which we have one here in Mm -hmm. Chicago. And I want to say I was with him. I was with him for like six months at that time. And when I stepped into that Lakeshore, I was lost. I was like Mm. so happy. And I was like, this, it's education. Like this is what it is. It's always going to be education. I'm always going to be an educator. So I actually went to... um, Cal State LA first for grad school. I started out there. And when I sat down to do an interview with the head of the reading department program, it was like I had been speaking a different language my whole time in LA. And I finally got to speak my native tongue. Like that's how it felt. We spoke about books. We spoke about reading. We spoke about just like all these, these really amazing things that made my heart happy. And I was like, this is it. This is what I, this is what I do. It's education. I had always considered being a reading specialist. Um, but I never followed through with it. And then it just made sense. So I did the program out there and I just wasn't crazy about it. Mm. I felt like I was with um, a lot of teachers who were trying to um, make like they, they wanted to get more credits to make more money. And they wanted they wanted the knowledge, too. But they didn't have that same level of passion. Right. It was more like I'm doing this after school, um, after I'm teaching, I'm exhausted. I have this going on, that, that, that. And I wanted to be immersed into something. Mm-hmm. And that is when I found the program at Harvard. I didn't even realize it was a Harvard. I was just looking up my program. Yeah. And then I saw that it was like a year intensive. You live on campus. You have to take this many credits. And then I was like, oh, my God, this is Harvard. So I remember mm-hmm. saying to my mom, like, I'm going to apply to Harvard. And she's like, whatever, Sabrina. She, like, walked away. No. <laughs> she's like, no. whatever. 
Yeah. <laughs> Did she not? Was she just like, oh, that's a pipe dream. Good yeah, luck. Yeah, probably. She's just yeah. like, you're crazy. Like, because yeah. she's like, you're never, you're never satisfied. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. I'm never, like, if if I know something is not good enough for me, I quit mm-hmm. and I move on to something better. And that was what I had to do at Cal State LA. I was like, this isn't, this isn't what I need. Yeah. Um, so I quit. And then I, like, I didn't even tell anybody. My mom. And maybe one friend mm-hmm. were the people that knew I applied to Harvard. Mm. So then when I did get in, there was so much like I, people were talking and it was like, did she really get into the actual Harvard? Mm-hmm. People would ask me, is it an online program? You know, little like digs uh, okay. like that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. One of my somebody I, I knew in L.A. was like, oh, yeah, I had a friend who went there and got like a certificate program. I was like, well, this isn't a certificate. I'm getting my master's from Harvard. Right. You know, I had to constantly say that. Mm-hmm. Even when I was there, I was like, you guys, you see, I'm on the campus. Like, I, you know, mm-hmm. so it, that was that was annoying. But man, that program at Harvard, it was, the, the experience was everything that I needed. Yeah. It really, really was. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. Speak a little bit about that your experience as a person of color in the Ivy League. I don't know a lot of Boricuas that went to an Ivy League school. Yeah, um, <laughs> I don't know many Boricuas that went to Harvard. Yeah. So while I have you here, I mean, what what was that? Yeah. What was that like? Because Harvard, I mean, it's my understanding that they have a legacy system. Mm-hmm. So if you have a grandparent or father, mother that went there. Yeah you automatically get preferential treatment right. to get accepted. Yeah. So if the demographic leans heavily white, yeah. the, even with things like affirmative action, mm-hmm. there's not, I yeah. mean, our applications aren't exactly looked at with the right. same weight as someone that's a legacy totally. applicant. The one way to think about it too is um, Harvard, so they like to, how do they say it? It's like different boats or something, I don't know. Yeah. So there's the college, right? Yeah. And the college is the one that really has the problem with the legacy votes okay. or the legacy um, admissions. And then there's each graduate school. So there's mm. the law school, the education school, um, mm-hmm. the Kennedy School for politics, med school, whatever, whatever, all those yeah. different ones. So my pool of people was only people who are applying to education, okay. to this specific program. Um, and the ed school, I believe, had about... I could be wrong, but I believe it was like 700 master's students. Mm-hmm. And then 
so it's not big it's not yeah. it's just not a lot and then a few doctorates um doctoral students and so even so even with that that knowledge you know i was scared i was really nervous i was like the the program said that it was going to focus on diversity and that was one of the things that attracted me to it i actually felt at cal state la i wasn't getting knowledge about diversity the way i i wanted to mm-hmm. we actually had a teacher who said something like if kids are from certain neighborhoods they can't learn and i was like can't can't like mm-hmm. i i was i was really upset and that was actually the day that i started researching other schools and so when i saw the info about harvard i i was like okay this is this is like they're aiming for diversity. They're trying to be more diverse, um, which is good. The leader, the supervisor for my program specifically was a black woman, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, getting better and better, right? And even so, when you walk in there, you're first, you're very nervous. What they did that was amazing is they had a people of color orientation before they had the general orientation. Mm-hmm. And then I also went up to the school for an admitted day and they had a student of color, um, like a dinner type mm-hmm. thing. So they were constantly giving us spaces to get together. And that and that honestly was like the best, almost like a shield from having to deal with a lot of the other issues because yeah. we did have them. And like I designed my Angry Brown Girl sticker while I was out there because mm-hmm. um, I had I had, was irritated in certain classes and it was like, you know, something, you know, different things would happen like that. But I had friends that I could turn to who got it, who who understood, because they all had the same apprehension before coming in, mm-hmm. you know. So luckily they put us into a space where we could we could talk to each other, we could hang out, and cool. want to say 99% of my friends from Harvard are all POC. That's awesome. Yeah. Were there any, like, Latinx student orgs yeah. active at the? Okay. I was on the, the head of the, um, it was Comunidad Latinx, and I was on the leadership board for that. Any club I was in, I was on leadership. I'm so nosy. I'm like, I want to be at all the meetings. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I want to ma- I want to be know everything happening. Right. Um, so, yeah, there was that. But to your point about, you know, Boricuas, most of the mm-hmm. Latinos who were there were Mexican. Yeah. Um, and so we were on the head of that, that board, and there was maybe six or seven of us, and mm-hmm. they were all amazing. But two of us weren't. Mexican. Well, I'm an eighth Mexican, mm-hmm. but I was not raised Mexican. Mm-hmm. So two of us were not Mexican dominant type stuff, you know? Um, and so we constantly had to kind of say, like, that's not a Latino thing. That's a Mexican thing, you know? Uh, okay. So it was like if they, yeah. So did you ever run into this situation in higher ed where it's like, okay, we want to have a Latinx themed party. Let's throw a sarape on yeah. it. Let's get the sombreros out. Like and, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the truth was they, so when we did the Adelos Muertos, like mm-hmm. it was great. Um, they they did the Dia de los Muertos and, and they had the skull painting and all that stuff and it was beautiful and I participated and I put a picture of my grandmother, my great grandmother who is Mexican, I put a picture of her on the altar and all of that, it was cool um, but then when it was like I wanted to do a paranda, I didn't have the same type of support and I also didn't have the same type of knowledge mm-hmm. because no one else had done a paranda, mm-hmm. right, so then everything like fell on me whereas opposed to they were able to share the load yeah. a little bit more um, and it's not to say they didn't support me. They would have. They would sure. support it all, but they just didn't know things yeah. that were Puerto Rican stuff. You know. And so, were you a were you a first generation, second generation college student? I'm technically first, but both my parents have associates, so okay. they still consider me first gen. And my parents okay. got my associate the associates when I was older too. Okay. Yeah. A lot of first gen students that I talk to nowadays express a little bit of like frustration with um, their families, their parents' understanding of. What are the demands yeah. of college? Um, did you ever face that at all? I mean, if your parents got associate's degrees, they have a sense of what yeah. higher ed is. Did, a little did, bit. Did they ever give you a little 
My, was it ever frustrating yeah, trying my, to get them to understand what you were doing? So when I do doing? when I did worse, the worst I did at school was when I was living with my parents because okay. my family is very very close and mm-hmm. so they're demanding of my time and it's yeah. and it's um it's a beautiful thing. I love my family, but it would be like let's go to the movies and I'm like but I have to study, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And um so that was really difficult. I always did better when I was away from them because I was able to to do the things that I needed to do and buttoned down. Um, my dad, most specifically, my mom was a manager at a clinic, so I think she gets like workload in a different sort of way. Mm-hmm. My dad was all about like, let's go for a bike ride, let's do this, let's do that. So we would always want to be hanging out or you know, um, having me run errands or different things mm-hmm. like that. So he didn't, he didn't really comprehend the level of it, or, and, and also the fact that I'm constantly involved in clubs that's added mm-hmm. to the workload. And he just didn't see, he's like, why, I don't know why you do all those things, you know? Yeah. To him, he just went to, when he went to school, he was like, I'm, I'm getting the things I need to get done so that I can get this job because I know that the job is available. Right. That that was why he did it. He's a respiratory therapist and um, he's like not super passionate about it, you know? Mm-hmm. He's a hard worker. Yeah. He's always been a hard worker, but he didn't follow his passion when it came to that. So. For me, when I'm doing these things that I'm passionate about, not only do I have to spend the time on it, but I want to, right. you know, so that's, that was a, a disconnect for sure. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, some students I'll talk to, their parents expect them to hold a full-time job yeah. while going to school full-time yeah. and can't understand why they can't schedule and organize properly. Yeah. What is, what is it like explaining that to them? I know you said it was hard for them to understand. Did you ever sit down with them and like go through no, like, I this is left. my schedule. Oh yeah, it's like, <laughs> deuces, I'm left, out of here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I'll say it and and um even when i'm you know talking to my dad on the phone Mm -hmm. i'll be like i can't really talk right now i'm busy Mm -hmm. oh you're always so busy you know he'll Mm -hmm. say things like that um so i've had to have conversations with him about it but honestly the best thing for me was going away and so for some students i do recommend that because i know how hard it can be Mm -hmm. um and what was cool is at harvard it was the first time during our student of color orientation it was the first time that someone acknowledged that and no one had ever acknowledged it when i went to I mean, I had been to like seven schools at this point yeah. and no one ever talked about this disconnect with your family or even understanding that like that there is a pressure to be successful mm-hmm. because your family is you come from people who are were doing survival and now you're trying to thrive. You're trying to have passion, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to have that conversation is is um, really it makes you feel validated when I have that conversation with other people. Like, yeah, I feel that, too. Mm-hmm. You know? Looking at the generation that came before us, mm-hmm. I, I so maybe this is, again, maybe this is a generalization, but it seems like what I hear from the generation before us, generation before them, so Gen Xers, baby boomers, it's like, yeah, you know, you co- you go in, go to your class, get your homework done, mm-hmm. done. But now the expectations for people in higher ed as they transition from their academic career to their professional career, there's so much more that goes into that transition. Yeah. Like, I feel like our parents, grandparents could have gotten a job, worked yeah. their way up got promoted, things were more affordable then, but now we have we have to be involved in clubs and we have to network and yeah. we have to know how to prepare a resume and we gotta know how to interview and mm-hmm. we gotta get this, that, and that other experience under our belt in order to be an attractive talent yeah. to, to organization. So it's, it's, true. it's more of a struggle now. Yeah, we can't, we can't be regular. Like we yeah. can't be, you can't be normal anymore. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's what it is. If you, I think about this with my students. I teach seventh grade, and seventh grade is the year that um, they, CPS looks at your grades mm-hmm. for high school. If you have a high school that's a local high school that's not a high-performing high school, you are 
basically in a lane to be in that low performing school. Yeah. And that sucks. And the only way to get out of that is to um, get into a better high school. And so I got into lane. I went to lane tech and I feel blessed that I went to lane tech because my mom was like, you are not going to Steinman's. That was going to be my funnel, Steinman's. Um, and and I think about my students who their their funnel is or, mm-hmm. which it doesn't mean you can't be successful at or. It's just that much harder. It is harder to be successful at or than it is to be successful at Lane or Whitney Young or any of that. Mm-hmm. And now I'm telling this 12 year old like you have to be so excellent to be able to do that. Like you just it, the fact that you exist on this planet doesn't mean that you deserve a good education. Like I right. I, I believe that you do. So when I have especially boys, it's always with the boys that are being adolescents, they're being kids, mm-hmm. they they are not given that grace because of the system that is set before them. So they have to not only get good grades, but they should be involved in other activities. They have to be doing plays, they have to be doing this and that. And if you don't, then you're just norm, a normal kid, mm-hmm. which should be fine, but it's not. Yeah, It's not anymore. Well, it speaks to the importance of really having a very intentional way of schooling. I mean, mm-hmm. we're dealing with people going to high school, college that aren't operating at the same institutional knowledge, the yeah. same level of transfer of wealth as right. some other people that exist in our in our country today, which is why it's like really, really cool to see people like yourself trailblazing, seeing like since we're talking about Harvard a little bit, <laughs> uh, that Harvard Yale football game protest. Yeah. I don't know if you were keeping up with that at all, but yeah. um, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I well, know that's not why the no, point no, of the, the show the today, first, but the first thing that? that that irritated me with all that coverage yeah. is that no one was covering it and saying how the, the kids were um, mm-hmm. protesting for the, to divest from the groups um, that held money from Puerto Rico, like the debt. Yeah. It was always about how it was about uh, environmental things. Mm-hmm. Like this is what we're talking about. This is this is literally changing the narrative in a in a really really negative way. You're not highlighting what's going on with these kids. You're not telling the truth, mm-hmm. and then you're like just basically pretending like that wasn't the reason. You know, you're just right. co- you're covering it in a bogus way. That was so frustrating. Yeah. I, don't, I didn't understand that at all. It's like there there's two there's two uh, strong reasons for why they're taking over the field during yeah. halftime. And yeah, the mention of Puerto Rico was non-existent. I'm like, y'all don't see the flags. Like, yeah. they're around. <laughs> like, right, yeah. I don't understand. What, yeah, so that was frustrating for sure. On episode 15 of the Paseo podcast, <laughs> we actually interviewed Boricua students from Yale. Oh, yeah. Um, so we we were taking a deep dive into what divestment, mm-hmm. what that means, and why it's important to address that issue. And just Yale alone, we were discussing, holds close to a billion dollars yeah. in Puerto Rico's debt. I don't know the number for my friend. I have a yeah. friend, Jocelyn, who very closely follows it. Um, mm-hmm. She knows the exact numbers and has written so many pieces on yeah. how much Harvard owns. She led protests over there, too, mm-hmm. while we were there. But again, manpower, yeah. there was not a lot of people that would show up to these protests. Mm-hmm. I mean, Harvard is, is it's horrible. It is horrible how much it's it's involved in all of that. Wall Street's a whole nother. Right. That's a whole nother episode. <laughs> um, so let's let's take it to today. So your day-to-day, you talked a little bit about your day-to-day as a CPS teacher. Mm-hmm. You are part of, in my humble opinion, one of the greatest teachers unions <laughs> in the country, CTU. Um, some awesome leaders too. Big fan, uh, uh, Stacey Davis Gates. Oh, yes. Uh, she's amazing. She made me um, so proud during all of this. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Cool. Talk about a rock star. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could listen to her talk for hours mm-hmm. too and your president's very good too yeah what's it like being a part of the chicago teachers union y'all had a pretty yeah. big year well my so yeah. oddly enough my first year teaching was the 2012 strike okay with so, mayor rama Emanuel. yes mm-hmm. so i was in the classroom mm-hmm. for a month and yeah. then it was like 
time to strike. And at the time, I was part of the union then, and mm-hmm. I just didn't, I didn't get it as much. I didn't know sure. what what was going on. Also, it was very funny that uh, Karen Lewis was a former teacher at Lane, mm-hmm. and um, so it'd be like, oh, it's just Care Bear, you know, she's out there doing her <laughs> thing. Like that's how people would talk about. It. Um, but but. The more I started to, as I was in the classroom more, mm-hmm. I started to really appreciate it more. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I wanted more money. I want more money. I I work right. very hard. I am worth a lot of money. Mm-hmm. The knowledge that I bring and my coworkers bring, it is worth so much more money. So I got no problem saying that I deserve more money. Um, but obviously, I didn't get into education for that, right? Mm-hmm. I got into education for the kids. And so what was... What was powerful was that this strike was different in that it was all about making a statement. Mm -hmm. I felt like we made more of a statement, a social justice statement this time around than Mm -hmm. we did previously. And that made me very proud. I think the the momentum we gain in education is always going to be very small because Mm -hmm. the people who control things either don't get it or don't want to get it Mm -hmm. uh, on a true deep level when it comes to our children. Um, But the strike gave me personally a platform to to say things that I've already always felt, but mm-hmm. people were listening. Mm-hmm. So I had those. Cha- I put up a picture. My principal got mad at me about this, but I put up a picture of my broken chairs in my classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, those chairs had been broken from the year before, and the principal had told me like he was like, "I'll get you new chairs." Mm-hmm. But I was like, "I shouldn't have never walked into a building with broken chairs. Yeah. It shouldn't be that my principal has to say, do we get chairs or do we get books? Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be like that, you mm-hmm. know." And the only reason I got new chairs is because he was able to figure all that out and finagle it, you know. Yeah. Um, we have one working water fountain in my building, and it has a pan underneath it that that drips. Mm-hmm. It's not that they don't want to fix it. It's not that they want our kids not drinking good water. But th- it's like they have to make these these different um, choices about it. And so we, this the strike gave us the platform to say that. Mm-hmm. You know, it gave us the platform to say it is really, really jacked up that our kids literally can only get sick on one day of the week when mm-hmm. the nurse is there. Yeah. And to be really honest, that nurse is not there for the kids. The nurse is there for an IEP meeting. Mm-hmm. That's what they're there for. They're in an wow. office the entire time. So it's just wild. It's interesting you brought up that example in particular, because as I was talking to some of my friends in Chicago, you know, it's like, could you imagine having your kid in CPS and having to tell them, like, listen, if you're going to get sick, avoid, <laughs> avoid Thursday, yeah. you know, avoid Wednesday through Friday, like yeah. get sick on a Tuesday, please. That no one should have to exist like that. No. I mean, and then I believe it was one one nurse one social worker mm-hmm. in every school. Yeah. Right? That's what we're aiming for. And and that what how, what was the result of uh the contract negotiations? So it's was... it, it will be one nurse, one social okay. worker, yeah, okay. but it's going to be slowly phased in. Okay. Um and then it's like a social worker for a certain number of students and then if you okay. have over that then you'll get another one. Okay. Um and to be honest, we need way more than than even that. You mm-hmm. know, my school has about 700 and maybe 800 kids a, a good year. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, our principal is really great about grants and funding. Mm-hmm. So he got a grant through Blocks Together. And that brought us this um, person who's like basically sort of some type of SEL coordinator. Mm-hmm. And he does a lot of emotional things with the kids. So he's kind of like a counselor. He's a licensed therapist. Wow. And then we have two counselors. Um, the social, and I believe we have one social worker. And one of the counselors is there on a grant as well. And so this is him being able to like do all these this maneuvering to get people in the building. Mm-hmm. And the people who are there are amazing. 
but we need more. Our kid, we have kids who need weekly therapy. I'm, I'm certain of it. Yeah. They just don't have access to it. You know. I had so many frustrating moments during uh, your union strike. Not any issue I had with CTU because I was like fist emoji, fist emoji, fist emoji, <laughs> like super like uh, supportive of y'all. But there was a lot of uh, chatter I'd see online. Now I know a majority of the city, mm-hmm. a majority of the teachers union was down for the strike. A majority right. of Chicago was supportive of the strike. But there was that that percentage in the minority that felt very strongly about y'all not not striking. Yeah. Um, and a common thing I would hear a lot, and I'm sure you've heard this too, uh, is um, you know, y'all get off, teachers get, uh, the summers off. Mm-hmm. Why can't you strike in the summer? Or I get, uh, I don't get summers off. Teachers yeah. get summers off. Why should they get paid more? Like, bro, that's not a strike. The whole point is a work stoppage. Yes. <laughs> that was frustrating. I also, so the, one of the most difficult things about, um, when it comes to like what people, the misconceptions about my finances, mm-hmm. it, that's something that bothers me. People think that teachers get paid all summer. Mm-hmm. My first year we had deferred pay. So all that meant is they would take money out of our paycheck, put it to the side and then give it to us year round. So we got the same paycheck every single time. We don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. That was one of the results of the strike was that they took that away. Um, so in the summer, unless I am able to really, really, really budget well, I'm working because yeah. I have bills to pay. So I'm doing some type of job. For me, it's almost always nannying, like because mm-hmm. that's just what I what I do. Um, and I work during the school year too, you know. So like I I personally have almost like four jobs. It's crazy. I teach obviously during the day, and that's my my main bread and butter. But it mm-hmm. is my passion. Um, I teach yoga as well. Mm-hmm. And so I get paid for the class and I get free yoga um, as part of that. So that was like the, the trade off yeah. for that. Um, with my shop, whenever I do a pop up, I pay myself like I pay my intern. Mm-hmm. My mom was like, you need to start paying yourself because I was doing it for free for a long sure. time. Yeah. She's like, you have to start paying yourself. So I do that. And then I babysit whenever I can. Mm-hmm. So at any given week, I am doing one thing from every part and mm-hmm. trying trying to, to make that money. So it would get very frustrating. People people would say like that I would get paid and then I have the summers off. And I'm like, I'm not a finance, like I'm not a financial person. Yeah. So for me to budget uneven paychecks, for me to try and figure out all that with, I mean, I went to Harvard, I have crazy student loans. Mm-hmm. I have insane student loans. And so I'm trying to figure all of that out all the time. And it would really, really upset me when I would see that too. But I try not to take it personal. But. Well, and even after the, the strike, wasn't all the time that was taken off during the work stoppage yeah. not reimbursed? Wasn't it only half? Only half. And so and those days were sprinkled in like, yeah. on some of the hardest dates on the calendar. I like, had to, what, like, I had to miss Year's one too. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. It was, they gave us five days back because we were out for 11 days. Okay. Um. So less than half back. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, I wanted to work. I wanted to be in the classroom. Yeah. And the year has not felt normal because of the strike. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I the other day I was joking my coworker. I'm like, I taught today. Mm-hmm. Like, it was really cool. I actually taught. I was mm-hmm. a teacher. Like, I finally feel like I'm getting back in the groove. And and because every unit has been interrupted. Mm-hmm. My units are based kind of around the calendar. Because yeah. I try to do thematic units for my students um, and talk about social issues. And I was like, we ain't doing the Holocaust during D-Day and Holocaust mm-hmm. Remembrance Day. Like, it just can't happen anymore. Yeah. Like, it's all over it's the place. so much time in a the period, period, class yeah. period. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's been really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, one of the days they gave us back was, like, uh, the day before Thanksgiving. 
um, before break, and I had already planned travel with my family. So then I had to use a personal business day. So we get three mm-hmm. personal business days a year. Mm-hmm. Two of them I used for the fest last year. So that leaves mm-hmm. me with one to just have like a day. Um, and now I've used it, you know. So I'm like, this is, it just gets frustrating. Like I, the, it's it's all over the place. It's interesting that you talk about your experiences and the multiple jobs you're juggling. You know, Sabrina, you're here with a master's in education <laughs> yeah. from Harvard University. Mm-hmm and have to work full four jobs in order to just be stable. Yeah. Um, and I'm a firm believer that no one should be working a full-time, should have a full-time job, mm-hmm. work a full-time schedule, and still have to make, struggle to make ends meet. Yeah. And we don't, we, like going back to that chatter I'd see on my Facebook feed, you know, I'm seeing people complain about teachers and what they make and asking for more money, but no one complains about lawyers, yeah. doctors. I heard I you mean, make 90000 to put the sand on the beach. I was like, what am I doing? Yeah, I'm in the wrong I mean, room. hey, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. there's there there are professions out there that we, are, we never question what mm-hmm. that annual salary is. But sometimes, for some reason, when it comes to the teachers and putting it in writing yeah. and allocating money in the budget for what is really a social justice issue, all of a sudden all the calculations calculators come yeah. out oh how are we going to pay for this yeah. but no one wants to no one brings out the calculators when it comes to tiff dollars no. and lincoln yards and like oh, we're it. that's that's tiff dollars are the property taxes that we pay into that's mm-hmm. supposed to help parts of our city like our schools right. like our underserved communities and they're going to very affluent neighborhoods mm-hmm. in our city and that only serves to gentrify people out yeah and when it comes to like the the finance thing too. I I like to make it very clear. I'm not going hungry. That's mm-hmm. not that's not the right. issue. I can pay my bills. Um, mm-hmm. I can live a, a decent lifestyle. But I should also. I I have a master's. Mm-hmm. I have an, a good education. I have lots of experience. I should be able to go to brunch yeah. once in a while. Mm-hmm. I should be able to to go shopping and buy things. Right. I'm at the age where a lot of my friends are getting married and um, mm-hmm. having kids, and so it's like travel for bachelorette parties, for weddings, for this, for that. I should be able to afford those things, and I shouldn't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. I don't like that it limits me into. You know, I, I should not have to live a meager lifestyle as a teacher. I did not sign up for the nunnery. That's mm. what what it's mm. you know it's about yeah. for me. Just the master's degree alone should allow you to have an income that you can go on vacation, catch a Bulls game. Yeah. I, I, I hear you. I hear you. And there's some teachers out there with like PhDs and two ma- yeah. and multiple master's degrees, and it's like yeah, we're actually pretty fortunate on, in Chicago. I yeah. think we are like the second highest paid. Mm-hmm. I think D.C. might be number one, okay. um, but in places like Oklahoma, the people can't cannot pay right. their bills. So it's very different. We're fortunate here, and in I some still don't states think we're paid enough. Oh, amen, you know? amen. Well, in some states, it's illegal. Like the state legislatures have made it illegal for teachers to strike. Yeah. What would you say to somebody like me who's not in CTU but very supportive mm-hmm. of what y'all did in 2019 with the work stoppage? What would you say to somebody that wants to articulate why that strike was important mm-hmm. and why future strikes maybe? important to someone that's like y'all get the summer off yeah and y'all make enough and i think you know. honestly like what what i said yeah. that my friend had done where it's just highlighting those things i i did not go on strike because of my water fountain but people mm-hmm. started listening to me about my water fountain mm-hmm. you know when that happened and so the strike was was important to say these are the issues that are going on and now you're gonna pay attention to us, and now you you know, so they should know that we don't have full staff. We don't. Mm-hmm. A lot of schools are um, are understaffed with special ed teachers, mm-hmm. so that means kids are not getting their minutes that they need for special education, which is designated by federal law. Um, 
that's that's real. You know, these are these are real issues. I also like to invite people constantly to to visit a school. I think every person who's a politician that has to do with education policy should spend time in a classroom. I firmly believe that. Um, one of my favorite Chicago authors, Eve Ewing, she um, is she was a teacher before she graduated from Harvard. So I, was like, I love her, <laughs> but she um, talks about how even though she now teaches at the University of Chicago, she's in that program. She spends time in the classroom. Mm always constantly she's constantly in there so she's got an ear to the ground to know what's happening Mm -hmm. and people should do that and don't make assumptions when you don't when you really don't know what's going on ask questions you know and the numbers are out there i mean i I remember listening to a podcast with troy laravier on Mm -hmm. and he was talking about and again i I, I have to fact check this but it was something along the lines of our chicago public schools were like top in the state in our spending Mm -hmm. but we're ranked one of the lowest in terms of staffing per school yeah i think it's like like 20 plus on average under staffed per school which is like insane but i think if people just educated themselves a bit more i know it's ironic to say that but it's like yeah if y'all educate yourself a bit more you know know what you're talking about i guess what i'm trying to say before you say it and asking questions and yeah I'm big on asking um, questions. Yeah. I never I never get upset when people ask in a legit way and yeah. they, you know what's going on as Not opposed like in to a say gotcha Yeah, cuz yeah, I'll have people like, yeah. "But don't you get summer off?" Right. N- n- yeah, right. but no. And also that's when I'm supposed to be working on my curriculum. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when I'm supposed right. to be fine-tuning that. Right. So now and there's jobs out there that get the winter off. They get yeah, so, there's plenty get, of people who get well, lots of times right. off. What work do you think still needs to be done in our Chicago public schools? Everything, my god. Yeah. Um I think I think it does come down. It does come down to funding. Mm-hmm. Our schools need to have um, a little bit more equity mm-hmm. in in the way that certain schools are funded. Um, my kids and I do because seventh grade is a, is the year that their grades count for high school. We do a uh, project where I have them research the high schools and I have them research the selective enrollment system mm-hmm. that we have now. Um, because it's a tier system. So I don't okay. know if you're familiar with that. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, maybe for people listening, okay. maybe just give a breakdown. So basically the city of Chicago, they break it up into four tiers. The most affluent areas are considered tier four. The lowest income areas are considered tier one. Mm-hmm. And so for, this is just for selective enrollment schools. Um, but to get into a selective enrollment school, your points that you have to get are different based on your tier. Mm-hmm. So it's higher for tier four and it's lower for tier one. Um, it's being some sort of like zip code based affirmative action, right? Yeah. But my students and I have this conversation because um, they 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 always want to why like mm-hmm. why do they lower the standard for us? Do they not think that we're smart? You know, like that's really yeah. how they internalize it. Um, and I would say to them, it's not that you're not smart. You have to remember that the the language that these tests are written in. I, when I teach my kids how to t- test, mm-hmm. I teach them we're learning another language. Mm-hmm. We're breaking it down. Right. We literally pick the question. I have I have to teach that as a skill, mm-hmm. because it's not a language that they're familiar with. I wasn't familiar with it, you know. Yeah. Um, and so it, I, the tests are written in a different way. And then when it comes down to funding, I say, who do you think is going to be more successful, the school or d- seen as successful, the school with one laptop cart that you have to switch around, or the school that has ten laptop carts? And everyone is one-to-one with an iPad. Who has more access to information, right? Mm-hmm. The keyboards on all of your laptops are are plucked out. I have a laptop that literally opens like this, and it has to be, like, propped up. And mm-hmm. if technology is the key to the world and access and, and teaching these kids these things, literally learning time is being lost when you can't log on to the Google Classroom. You know, like, it's it's 
it's all of that. So the funding needs to be there. I think the tier system, I get what it's supposed to be doing, but I think it's a Band-Aid. And then also the people who are in tier four neighborhoods, it gives them a lot of resentment towards low-income people because they think, like, look at how low the standard is for them. Mm -hmm. And that's not cool either. You know, I don't want... I don't, the wealthy people in Chicago need to be allies to our lower and 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 to be honest, Chicago is a working town. I learned this when I moved to LA that like we are more close to the, a line like that than I thought. Um, but they they do end up feeling resentment, and I understand why. Yeah. You know, it pegs us against each other, and yeah. so it just needs to come down to better funding and giving our kids the opportunities to have an equal playing field. Right. It's my understanding with our property tax system too, where we. If you are living in a place like Lincoln Park and you're paying property taxes, well, the school, public schools in Lincoln Park are yeah. going to get Lincoln Park money. Right. But if you're in uh, Humble Park or let's say East Garfield Park and you're paying property taxes there, right. the schools are going to get East Garfield Park money. Right. Right. So yeah. that's a weird. I don't understand why we have that system yeah. um, to fund our schools. That just you're it's just, just setting up schools like for struggle yeah it's always been like that and my kids and I do actually research that too and we talk about it Um, so we talk about home value Mm -hmm. and who's going to be able to bring in more money and who's going to we always put it back to this laptop card like it's Mm. it's it's a good way to contextualize it yeah right yeah and so they'll be like well you can get this many laptop cards with with one house and this neighborhood you need 10 houses to get one laptop card Mm -hmm. so they they start to comprehend that and and understand the difference because I think that's a big issue too is like we don't tell our kids these things and then they just they see the they see the hood as regular and they mm-hmm. think that it's okay mm-hmm. um i really really love uh, jamal cole the my block my city oh, my hood yes, yes he has a campaign in a book that he wrote mm-hmm. that's called it's not regular and he talks about the currency exchange all the liquor stores that we see all of that mm-hmm. and that is a food huge deserts. premise of my teaching yeah the food yeah, desert yeah. um i've been teaching like that with especially with seventh graders like it is not okay that your that your funnel for high school is this school that is low performing it's not okay it is not okay that you all can i was like having them raise their hand tell me if you could think of a liquor store two three four and all my kids can raise their hand they know them Mm. they know exactly where the liquor stores are you know and it's not it's not normal it's not okay yeah and i want to point that out to them and make sure they know that I know, going gr- growing up in Humble Park, I could tell you where the liquor stores were and the currency. I mean, now it's a gentrifying neighborhood, so oh, lo and behold, a lot of that stuff is right. hard to find nowadays. So yeah. it's, it's interesting how that kind of concentrates in, in certain neighborhoods. And that's the argument I yeah. constantly get into with people. I actually re-released the Angry Brown Girl sticker after a conversation with someone who nice. wanted to move to Humble Park. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how the neighborhood, it's better when it gets gentrified. And I was like, sure, there's things that pop up that are that are nice, but it's for who? Mm-hmm. Who is who is the person that is is invited to that space? Mm-hmm. You know, when I go to Park and Field, I like the place Park and Field, mm-hmm. but I know Park and Field was not created for me. It was not created for the dudes next mm-hmm. door in the Latin American Motorcycle Club. I know right. that. You know, the more the most Latinos you see at Park and Field are the ones working there, mm-hmm. and like that's great, that's cool, but. Right. You know, it, it was not created for us. Right. You mentioned Chicago being a working class town, mm-hmm. definitely a birthplace for unions. Yeah. Haymarket riots were here. Yeah. Union representation is so important. That's like, that's lawyers, that's mm-hmm. health benefits, that's people um, advocating for you for fair fair wage, for fair work. I feel like I, I don't, I'm getting on a soapbox here when it comes to union <laughs> representation, but if you had to whittle down why union representation is so important being a member of CTU, what would you say your top three reasons are for the importance of a worker mm-hmm. to be part of a union? 
You know, I never really thought about it a lot. Yeah. I think for teaching specifically, I mm-hmm. feel like our jobs can be a little bit volatile and and mm-hmm. and um like your first year of teaching, they can drop you for nothing. There's yeah. there's no um they don't have to have a reason for it. Mm-hmm. Could just be because they don't like you. Um I teach very revolutionary type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Stuff that um I would not be able to teach at a lot of different schools. I'm lucky that my principal has the same mindset as me, and so he supports the stuff that I teach. Mm-hmm. He okayed my curriculum for the jump. But if I was at a different school, I could probably get fired over some of the stuff that I teach or at least be battling with someone about it. And um, a union would protect me in that mm-hmm. in that sense. I think also the other thing is unions are, what I've noticed, especially this year, is, is the union leader for me is a knowledge base of my rights that I, mm-hmm. that I don't necessarily understand. Mm-hmm. So if I... Um, I'm having an issue trying to figure out like a sick day or something or my pay, I go to the union rep and mm-hmm. she gives me that information. And that's really, really useful. And, and um, you know, you don't always have that. Mm-hmm. When I did other work, when I was when I was a nanny, I never knew what like what was okay, what wasn't okay, what was um, benefit wise, what was pay wise, like all of that. Because that was it was like a, a it was a legit payment type thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had no one to go to for all of that stuff or even like talking about treatment or anything, you know, and you have that with with the union. I have to admit, I'm not like crazy, like gung ho, like I love my union, Mm -hmm. but I am grateful. I'm grateful that I have it because I would not have made a decision to go on strike. Like I don't Mm -hmm. have that type of power, Mm -hmm. but the union does Mm -hmm. and the union does, does support it. And I think Chicago in general is a city that supports workers, right. and that's powerful to me. And that's that's something because we're because we're a union town. The line yeah. of being abused in our in our field mm-hmm. is so thin. Yeah, and having the union there can be very very helpful. Oh. You are on the planning committee mm-hmm. for the Puerto Rican festival. Yes. So we're going to tack another thing on to your long resume <laughs> yeah. here. Tell us a little bit of the story. Last year, uh, there was, uh, I don't want to get too into the controversy because I want to be respectful, respectful of your time, but the festival was run by another organization. Two years ago. Two yeah. years ago. Right. They got into some shady stuff. Couldn't do it anymore. Allegedly. Allegedly. Sorry. Know. Yeah, you're right. Oh my gosh. Hang I don't on. know. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> I don't need a cease and desist letter coming right. Um Allegedly, mm-hmm. which left the future of the Puerto Rican festival up in the air. Yeah. And a lot of people were saying it might be the first time we, we may not have, have a Puerto yeah. Rican festival like in decades. Yeah. Um, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, um, how you got onto the the planning team? How did last year's festival's festival go? And what's in store uh, moving forward? Because it takes place yeah. every June. Every Yeah, yeah. It, for Father's Day weekend. Okay. Um, we kept that tradition. It's actually very, very interesting because, like I said, I was gone for three years mm-hmm. um, in L.A. and in Boston. And so the final year when the festival was all, I wasn't even here. I didn't even go to the festival. Um, and so then I, when I moved back to Chicago, I got connected with uh, Marissa, mm-hmm. who uh, is part of Las Solitas and was a teacher at Albizu Campos. Friend of the podcast. Yes. We had them on for Lolita Lebron's 100-year birthday. I love those girls. They're amazing. Yeah. Um, they, Quick plug. <laughs> yeah, right. She, so I got connected with Marissa um, mm-hmm. to do, she wanted to do a pop-up, and she saw my brand. Mm-hmm. And um I had kind of been established with doing the pop-ups in L.A., so I was familiar. She even said the first, she was like, you came in, you had your table, you had your tablecloth. Like, she was so impressed. Um, And that was the event that I met Carlos. Mm. And Carlos, 
Another as part friend of the, of the Puerto Rican agenda. Yes, he came on. <laughs> we had him on to talk about the Puerto Rican, the Boricua Film Festival. Yes. Yeah. I love his film festival. Yeah. Um, and so he was was doing that event with Marissa, and that's how we how I got introduced to them. Mm. Um, and then I don't know all the background because there is an oversight board mm. for the festival, and um, that was that was created. Um, the agenda is part of it, PRCC is part of it, all of that stuff. And um, somehow Carlos became the executive director of the festival. Okay. And so he was looking for people to help out. The coolest guy. I don't know how he finds some, himself in these positions. Because people um, trust he's him. Always he's always yes. yeah. yeah. He's yeah. amazing. He's, he is a, and I felt this from the moment that I got to talk to him. He is a visionary mm-hmm. and he supports everybody around him. Yes. Um, and that Absolutely. is really cool that, you know, when I when I got on the team, there was like I was like I kind of want to do something like this. He goes, do it. You mm-hmm. could do it, and he trusts me, so I like that. Um, but anyway, he he was he got placed as the executive director, mm-hmm. and then was kind of looking around for a team. He had made announcements at the agenda, like if anybody wants to um, join and help mm-hmm. me planning it, let me know. And then he asked me, he was like, I want you to be a part of it. I see the mm-hmm. things that you that you get done. So I said, yes, of course. And I was like, I can't believe it. Like, I came back to Chicago and I was like, I knew that I was going to do stuff in the Puerto Rican community. That was a big deal to me. Yeah. I was like, I've been Puerto Rican my whole life, but I want to be like involved. Like, mm-hmm. I want to make make moves. Um, and so for it to be on the, the fest planning committee was like, I, I just couldn't even imagine it, you know. Um, and so... Last year it went it went okay it went pretty well it was mm-hmm. it was raining so much and yep. that was the most horrible thing I think on like the most popular days too right it was yes. like Saturday it was Saturday and like the people's parade was yes. that day and, it was yeah. like the sun yeah. the God no. shone his light on the fe- on the parade <laughs> and it went wonderful yeah. and the the parade looked so beautiful and then the moment that people were gonna come feed into the festival yeah. it just started pouring mm-hmm. and so I felt really really sad about mm-hmm. that obviously. Um, but, it but was I cool. will say, I heard at a Puerto Rican agenda meeting that one I happened to be at, they were reporting on the festival. Yeah. I think it was the first, I can't remember the exact number, but it's um, it was the first time in years where the festival actually was in the green. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't it the was black, it wasn't funny. the it was red. Like, he made like, we, he was, like, Carlos was like, we made like $200. It yeah, was something yeah. like that. Yeah, but, right, right. But technically in the green, yeah. yeah. And and that was an important part. Like, we had to charge. You know, mm-hmm. people were very upset about that. They were like, the festival needs to be free. Um, and I get that. I, I know. I get why mm-hmm. people feel that way. But mm-hmm. the reality is that we had a $0 budget. Right. You know, we inherited something that was um, a basically an idea and an mm-hmm. expectation level and no money to put that forward. Right. So we had to do what we could with what we had. Mm-hmm. And so we had to charge. And, um, and the hope was to make enough money to to then fund things for the following year. Mm-hmm. Obviously $200 is not enough, so we have yeah, to, you know, right, we have right. to continue to do more sponsorship. That was the other thing mm-hmm. because of um because of how people felt about the festival from before, we got a lot of sponsors telling us no and they didn't want to be involved. They said do this one this year and then come to us next year mm-hmm. and we'll talk. Um mm-hmm. and so we've been having better feedback this year because we're like look what happened. We had this, we added new things that had never been to the festival. We mm-hmm. added um the job fair. We added a college fair. We added the Scholastic Book Fair, you know, so I was because I came in and I was like, I want education. I want education and art. That was Mm -hmm. a big deal to me. So we brought in some live artists to come in and do live painting. Um, And it it went well. I want it to be even better. You know, I want it to be bigger and better. And we have really big dreams for what's going to happen this year. We're already planning. We're already sitting down. We sat and we're like, okay. 
this is what you basically did last year. This is what you did and kind of talked about everybody's roles. And then we said, I told Carlos, I was like, look, when I turn to people and I say I'm on the committee, it doesn't speak power to the stuff that I'm able to do in the festival. And we need to speak power to that to tell people what our roles really are. So I officially became the director of arts and education. That's that was the title. And it fits because I'm not I'm not an artist, but I appre- I appreciate art. I support it. And I want it to be at our festival because art is such a big part of our community. Like we, we have artists in every family. We all know that. And so I want to give a space where our artists can come in and create something. And, you know, last year it was like people were, were paying for the festival and they were a little upset that they even had to pay. Mm-hmm. Some Most people, I mean, obviously they came, we made money, like right. they, they yeah. paid for it. But I want it to be that someone comes in, they pay for it and they go, wow, this is really worth my right. money like I want it I want them to hang out yeah. I want them to see beautiful visuals I want them mm-hmm. to just enjoy their time there feel proud mm-hmm. you know we want to bring in um storytelling too like a friend of mine was saying how now that his parents have passed he's like I don't want to hear the story about my dad through my uncle who might have been mad at him mm-hmm. you know I want to mm-hmm. hear it from my dad like I want I want that so mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out different ways to make this more about the community yeah I remember seeing online a lot of chatter about uh, the price that, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they're charging. Because I think yeah. in the previous year, it was just asking was for a donation yeah. or something like that. But I mean, like, just pay the money. Yeah. It wasn't, it, honestly, it was, like, I tend to be very understanding and for to people's financial situations. But y'all were offering some good deals. Yeah. Like, I think kids under a certain age got they're in for free. free. Yeah. You had packages where yeah, it was, like, kind of like 15 bucks for four people yeah. or something like they that. They had never done wristband yeah. deals and, and Eventbrite, yeah. and we did that. We brought yeah. that in, and it was really cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the innovation, uh, outside-the-box thinking, um, you know, when looking at other Latinx festivals in the city in Chicago. I mean, no one complains about paying money for the Cuban festival. No. Um, but, you know, when it comes to looking at even something as simple as the PR Fest lineup, mm-hmm. like, oh, how come we can't get big acts? Well, how do you think La India or Elvis Crespo are playing at the Cuban festivals? Because they charge. Yeah. You know, you got to invest. You got to invest in something right. in order to get the production out of it that you want money's not just gonna it doesn't come just out appear. of nowhere yeah. yeah so i was keeping up with all your all videos doing a little yeah, uh, crisis communications with people we were trying to i be thought it was effective that's good yeah, i'm yeah, glad that was yeah. the whole thing it was like we wanted to be transparent we wanted to mm-hmm. we wanted you to know like this is now the people who have it and this isn't we know we weren't talking about the people who did it before it was right. nothing to do with that like I, I don't even know i couldn't pick them out on the street i have no idea mm-hmm. who ran it before um and so we just were trying to be very transparent and say, this is what you can expect. Yeah. This is why we're charging. Um, and it helped because people were then putting our faces aligned to it. Mm-hmm. It was so funny because um, Marissa and I were constantly referred to as the girls from the video. <laughs> yeah. So we were we were out one night at, a, at yeah. like... Where were we at? Guys? Y'all were on the corner by the Bandera. I remember that video. That video, yeah. Yep. It was we, like we, night, it was like <laughs> the sun wasn't even out. No, it was yeah, nighttime, yeah. but that's what we do. We were like looking around the park. Right, Where do we right. plan stuff? We were trying mm-hmm. to be very purposeful. No, but we were like out at Beauty Bar or something, and this guy's like, are you mm, the girls from the yeah. video? Yeah. And it was so funny because we knew. I was like, man, we're the, the girls from the video. So vague, mm-hmm. but we knew exactly what they were talking about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. fantastic. So well, Sabrina, you've been uh, a great guest. I uh, want to be respectful of your time. We've already gone way over the time <laughs> I told you to expect. Um, how can our listeners keep up with you? Social media, website, yeah. like how can they find your store? All how can it, they keep yeah. up with you on your channels? Um, my personal Instagram is Es La Maestra. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Then I have the one for my shop, which is Shop La Maestra. My website links to um, my shop as well, so all of it is in the bio. I have shoplamaestra.com and eslamaestra.com. I try to put more stories, the features that started with the Latina, Educated Latina Mm -hmm. campaign. Those are on my website. Um, My class wish list, all of that stuff is on there. And then, of course, a link to the shop is on there as well. Great. All right. Well, Sabrina Alisea in the building. Thank you so much for breaking down things for us, sharing your knowledge. We appreciated you uh, coming on the podcast. Appreciate that. Thank you. Special thanks to La Maestra Sabrina Alisea for coming on the show. If you enjoyed our interview, let us know. Hopefully, we'll get the chance to welcome Sabrina back to the Paseo podcast soon. The PR Agenda have been hard at work providing relief efforts to the hardest hit areas of Puerto Rico after nearly 2,000 earthquakes have rocked La Isla. So I just want to share a quick update on the progress of the 3Rs campaign for earthquake relief in Puerto Rico. So far, according to the Agenda's social media channels, the campaign has worked with local Puerto Rican-driven initiatives to host a community kitchen in Ponce with Chef Ivoni and the organization Lea Conmigo. That is one of many community kitchens that are being planned. There are more planned for the future. Water, food, and art supplies were also delivered to Ponce for children's activities. Uh, So that's all been delivered. Uh, Tents, tables, and tarps for an improvised medical clinic were delivered to Santa Elena in Guayanilla. In Panuelas, a solar gazebo, canopies, tarps, multi-game tables for kids and teens were delivered, and a donation was made to support the work of Dr. Iris Zavala Martinez and her team of 20 psychologists spread throughout the area's hit to provide psychological, first aid, and mental health interventions. Now, this is just a fraction of what has been done so far with the 3Rs campaign. It's just a small piece. So if you want to learn more about what is going on with the 3Rs campaign and the progress that's being made and how you can lend a hand, visit PuertoRicanChicago.org. Again, that's PuertoRicanChicago.org. Also, if you are in Chicago, there will be a fundraiser on February 2nd at the Wild Hair in Lincoln Park from 5 to 10 p.m. Live music, stand-up comedy, dancing, raffles, and the Super Bowl will be played if you rock with football like that. And tickets go for 20 bucks if you buy them in advance, $25 at the door, and 100% of proceeds go to relief efforts. Stop by and show your support if you can. If you can't make it out to the February 2nd fundraiser, come by the day before, Saturday, February 1st, to the February meeting of the Puerto Rican Agenda. That's going to be from 8.45 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. at Roberto Clemente Community Academy, right by Western and Division. And directly after that, the Puerto Rican Agenda will be having a fundraiser for the 3Rs campaign. So the Puerto Rican Agenda is going to go from meeting and talking about action items directly to actually taking action and helping raise money for the three R's campaign for Puerto Rico. There's going to be vendors, Puerto Rican films being shown, and musical performances. So if you can chip in a little bit, the people of Puerto Rico would really appreciate it. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, Connect with us by visiting our website, paseomedia.org, emailing us at paseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at Paseo Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week.
Cuídate.